God, we do thank you and praise you uh, for your deep uh, compassion for us, your people. Lord, a, a room this size, there are many needs and, and burdens represented, uh, Lord, here in this room. Lord, many of us, even this weekend, um, have experienced perhaps uh, painful sorrow and disappointment, tension maybe in relationships, and, and yet, Lord, thank you that because of your care for us, you invite us to bring those burdens before you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd even use this passage to comfort us, to instruct us, to even challenge us. So, Lord, I pray that you would be our guide and be our teacher. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout the Bible, God often announces a new day for his people through the circumstances of a miraculous birth. There are many examples of that throughout the Bible, but just to give you a few, we have Isaac in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, Isaac was born to uh, old Abraham and Sarah. We have examples of this in Jacob and in Joseph. But probably the most miraculous birth of all time uh, is Jesus. We have the Son of God who's born of the Virgin Mary in Matthew chapter 1. Well, today we are introduced to another miraculous birth, this time uh, the birth of Samuel. And his birth, like many of the other miraculous births in the Bible, uh, God is declaring a new movement among his people. Uh, this is a very significant time in Israel's history, a very pivotal season that they are walking in right now. And so we're going to see kind of the beginning of a new trajectory uh, that God has for his people right here in uh, this passage. That's basically the main idea, and we're going to walk through this passage just kind of unpacking uh, that concept. So jumping in really where we left off last week in verses 19 and 20, uh, we're going to see this miraculous child uh, given. If you look at verse 19, uh, we see that before Elkanah and Hannah and his family, before they go back home to Ramah, which was a two days journey from Shiloh, uh, we see that Hannah and Elkanah, they get up early the next morning and they worship the Lord there at Shiloh. Just a reminder, Shiloh is the kind of the central place of worship for God's people at this time. This is where the tabernacle was located, where Joshua put it two centuries prior. Uh, this is where they would perform the appropriate sacrifices and have those religious celebrations and, uh, and times of worship. So they're there in Shiloh, and, and Hannah and Elkanah just continue to pour their heart out to the Lord in worship. And I think that's important because last week as we looked at the topic of, of desperation being a gift from the Lord, I emphasized the role of prayer in those seasons of painful disappointment and desperation. Well, worship is just as important. If you've walked through your own season of desperation or, or painful disappointment, you know that prayer and worship, it's just different in those seasons. It's, it's a little bit more uh, intimate and powerful and robust. And we can imagine just how palpable their worship was in verse 19, how soul-stirring, how pure it was as they're pouring their hearts out before the Lord. I'm sure if you've had your own verse 19 moment, you can relate well with Hannah. But notice at the end of verse 19, we're told that after they returned home, uh, Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. Now, this is to know uh, his wife in a biblical sense, right? They had sexual relations, which uh, makes sense because of what we're told in verse 20. But let's not jump too far ahead. Look at the end of verse 19. We're also told that the Lord remembered Hannah. The Lord remembered 
Hannah. It's interesting to, to think that God is remembering something, isn't it? Well, what does this mean? Well, it surely doesn't mean that God had forgotten Hannah. It's impossible for, for God to forget things. Even when you come across passages like Hebrews 8.12 or Isaiah 43.25, where we're told that God no longer remembers the sin of his people, that does not mean that our sin somehow slipped out of God's mind or that he has forgotten our sin. No, God's knowledge is infinite. It's eternal. It's, it's endless, Psalm 147 verse 5 reminds us. But rather, what those passages are referring to is that God no longer holds our sin against us. He no longer acts against us because of our sin. Now, why is that true? Well, it's because of Jesus, that Jesus died in our place and paid for our sin. So God actually does something much better than just simply forgetting our sin. He actually forgives us of our sin. I think that's helpful because when we come across verses like verse 19, we are tempted to mistakenly take human qualities and human characteristics and to project them onto God as if it's a one-to-one -one comparison, right? But we're tempted to look at verse 19 and to think, oh, poor old God just kind of struggles with amnesia, you know, as if the God of all knowledge, the God of, of eternity somehow forgot one of his children, Hannah, and then has this, this moment, this epiphany, where he all of a sudden remembers her. And it's almost as if, hey, Hannah, sorry, I forgot about you. I'm trying to run the world and keep track of all these millions of people. Did you need something? I'm, I'm sorry about that. No, when, when the Bible tells us that God remembers, it's not the same as if you and I remembering to take out the trash or to respond to an email after forgetting. Now, when God remembers, what that means is that God is now responding and acting in a way that aligns with his promises and his purposes, that he's now on the move. He's now fulfilling something that he said he was going to do. Remember Hannah's prayer in verse 11. She asked God to do just that. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, and remember me and not forget your servants. So now we see in our passage, God is answering that prayer. God is on the move. He's fulfilling his promise. God remembers Hannah. God's beginning to exalt the humble Hannah and use this ordinary, obscure woman to advance his eternal purposes. And it's centered on this miraculous child named Samuel. If you look at verse 18, uh, Hannah says to Eli, let your servant find favor in your eyes. It's interesting because Hannah's name in the Hebrew means favored one. And so now she's experiencing the favor of the Lord. In verse 20, God does the miraculous. God opens her womb. She bears a son and names him Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel enters the scene and he will be a central figure for us through the majority of this book. Well, as we move to verses 21 and 23, we see also a deep trust that is expressed. In these verses, the, the, the rhythm of Elkanah's family returns, and we see once again just Elkanah leading his family well, and they go back to Shiloh for those yearly sacrifices, and for him, he is paying a vow. But if you notice here, Hannah declines to go which is very interesting. She, she's focused here on weaning Samuel uh, during this time, and rightfully so. 
This is not Hannah dragging her feet and fulfilling that, that vow, that, that promise that she made to the Lord that if you give me this son, I'll give him all the days of his life. No, she's not, she's not kind of going back on that, but rather uh, she is focusing on being a faithful mother. In the ancient, in the ancient Near East, children uh, were usually not weaned until the age of three. So the child was actually with the mother for several years early on. So Hannah is simply but significantly being a faithful mother. She's providing for her son in ways that only she could, and that should be commended. You look at verse 23, and we see Elkanah's response, and it's very instructive. I, I wish we knew more about Elkanah. He seems just such like an interesting guy, the way that he uh, let, led his family so well. But look what he says here. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. He's essentially saying, look, you're the mother. You know when, when the weaning has taken place. I, I, not me. You make that call. But then notice what he says next. He says, only may the Lord establish his word. May the Lord establish his word. Very interesting phrase here. And there's all kinds of different views of what he means by this. And the reason for that is because there is no established word of the Lord so far in 1 Samuel. There's no occurrence and so there's several views of what he's referring to. One view uh, basically states that, that Elkanah is essentially saying uh, the Lord's will be done, right? Lord's will be done. Just, you know, let God, you know, have what he wants here. Others believe that when Elkanah says the Lord's word, that's actually referring to a specific passage, uh, such as Deuteronomy chapter 23, 21, which states, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require, require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Okay, so some believe that what Elkanah is saying here is, hey, you can wean the boy, sure, but don't forget this really important promise that you made to God, because if you break it, that's a very serious sin. Okay, that's a possible uh, uh, interpretation of this verse, but if that's what Elkanah meant, then he probably would have said something to the effect of, may the Lord help you fulfill your word. Because right? after all, it's Hannah's vow that's being addressed. So my, my particular leaning on understanding this phrase is, is really rooted on remembering the larger story of 1 Samuel and really the whole Old Testament. The word of the Lord or God's word, that's a very important phrase that we're going to see all throughout 1 Samuel and even throughout the Bible. That the word of the Lord, God's word here is the expression of his purposes. It's the expression of his promises. And in this scenario, it's the expression of his promise to his people. You think about Joshua 21 verse 45 says something very similar not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All come to pass. So when Elkanah is saying, may the Lord establish his word, I think we should understand God's word there to refer to the promise made to Israel of a promised one. That's the main driving force behind 1 Samuel. They had no leader, there was no king in Israel, and they're looking for God to establish and fulfill that promise that he made to his people. So as the Lord answers Hannah's prayer, he's also fulfilling his promise to Israel of bringing about the promised one. So Elkanah is essentially saying, 
May God go on to bring about his purposes and fulfilling uh, through this son. And I think that's the right interpretation because it also shows us what has been true about Elkanah and Hannah throughout chapter 1, and that's their deep trust in the Lord. That for them, as they consider what God has promised, what God has said for them, they believe that God will come through, that God will do what he has said he will do, that God is a promise-keeping God. And even in light of all that, they, they're, they're understanding that Samuel is being born, but do they fully understand the full intent of how God is going to use them? Not quite, but they're trusting and they're, they're looking to the Lord to fulfill his promise. Now, this now brings us to the last section of chapter 1, verses 24 and 28, and we see a weighty vow fulfilled. Hannah, now after Samuel is weaned, takes him and and a very generous thank offering back to Shiloh. She brings a three-year-old bull, some flour, some wine, which is ironic because she was called the drunkard as she was praying, but she brings some wine nonetheless to the tabernacle, to the priest Eli as an offering. And she brings the child to him, according to verse 25, but I really want us to linger at a phrase here at the end of verse 24. And the phrase at the end of verse 24, it says that the child was young. The child was young. I was wrestling with that. I was thinking through, why add that in there? Like, we already know that Samuel is on the young side. He just was weaned. So why include this detail here? We're tempted to kind of fly through each verse, right? That's the Old Testament, just kind of get the the cliff notes, get the high-level stuff. But this phrase, I think, is intentionally in here. It's meant to help us feel what's happening here in this passage. It's to help us understand the human side of what Hannah was walking through. And I want you just for a moment to imagine being Hannah and what she was feeling and what she was going through in this particular passage. And just think about it for a a moment. Year after year after year of painful sorrow, painful disappointment, of wanting a child and yet not being able to have any children. And really month after month of being reminded of that if we want to get more specific. Just painful sorrow. She's looking around, seems like everybody else is having children, right? Elkanah's other wife, Penina, is having many children, many kinds of, of babies are all around her just as a reminder of this unmet expectation and desire. There's even a spiritual component, right? Because as, as the Israelite women were having children, people were wondering, is this the promised one? Is God gonna fulfill his promise right here with this son? And so she's feeling a sense of exclusion from the purposes of God's people. Perhaps she's feeling even forgotten by God here in this moment. And yet she's praying her heart out, her soul out before. She's begging God for a child. You have to wonder if people around her thought that she was crazy. Right? You have to wonder if people are like, man, just get over it already. Like you've lost your mind. You know, when we go through painful situations, there's no shortage of Job's friends, right? Job's friends who might say silly things or point out, man, are you, are you in sin right now? Is this what's happening? Is this why God's not blessing you, right? Maybe people are saying, man, you, you seem to be sinfully idolizing being a mother right now. You need to get over this and just trust in the Lord and, and whatever. 
But then God does the, the miraculous. He, he does the impossible, opens her womb, and she's able to bear a son. This miracle baby, this baby that she has prayed for, that she has agonized over, this baby that for three years she has loved and cherished and has cared for and has watched probably every moment of the day, all right, watching him grow, watching him learn, watching him live. She loved this baby. She cherished him. And yet it's in that, that that understanding that she ultimately gives Samuel to the Lord, but entrusts Samuel into the care of Eli, the priest. And then like as a reader of the Bible and as a father of three, my youngest turns three, he turns three in April. Like that verse, that phrase just wrecked me this week. Like trying to somehow put myself in her shoes and just feeling the weight and, and the amount of, of trust and obedience that Hannah demonstrates, it's absolutely unbelievable. But can you imagine doing this? Like, you know, the, Hannah's just a regular human being. Like these characters of the Bible, they're not superhuman. They have real feelings, real emotions. They're just like you and me. They go to the bathroom every day, just like us. They're normal. And so this is a gut-wrenching moment for Hannah. And yet she demonstrates amazing trust and obedience to the Lord. And I can imagine myself in a moment of desperation saying something like, yeah, God, give me a son and I, I promise I'll give him back to you. But to actually fulfill it will be way more challenging. You wonder if Hannah was tempted to forget the vow, right? It was several years ago at this point. You know, you get busy with having your first child and, and parenthood. Maybe she was tempted to forget about it. Or, or maybe she, you know, wanted to pass off the vow and, and maybe kind of said something, well, I was just so emotional. I, I, that was so impulsive of, of me declaring that God will understand. Or maybe she uh, was tempted to pull the God card, you know, saying, well, like, um, you know, God, like, uh, you know, God really said to me, that like, I can keep Samuel. So I'm just gonna like keep Samuel here, right? That, that's what God told me. You're just pulling the God card. I wonder if she was tempted to do that. Or maybe she was tempted to, to renegotiate with the Lord, like change the terms up a little bit. Like say, you know, Lord, I, I know I made this vow, but, but eventually I'll fulfill it. Maybe when he's a little bit older, maybe she was tempted to rationalize and say, I, I can't make this decision for, for Samuel. He's only three, he's only four. Like, we'll wait till he's an adult. That, that's the decision that he should really make for himself. All these things were running through my mind <laughs> that I'd be tempted to make to get out of this vow. And yet she doesn't. She trusts in the Lord. And what an act of trust. Not only the heartache, but this is the other thing that pointed that stuck out to me. As I was reading this, we have to be reminded of the spiritual condition that the house of the Lord was in during this time. This is a dark period in Israel's history, uh, not only not having a king, but the spiritual leadership at this time was not so good. I mean, Hannah has her own example of praying, and she's, she's called a drunkard. <laughs> like, how about tonight we come back for prayer and worship night, and you're praying your heart out. I'm like, did you have too much to drink this afternoon? Like, that would be very off-putting at the very least, like he was unable to recognize deep, heartfelt prayer. And his sons, these associate priests, 
are even worse. We're going to get to know them in chapter 2. But they're corrupt, they embezzled, they robbed the tabernacle, they committed acts of sexual sin. Chapter 2, verse 12 sums it up nicely. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. How about that for having priests, spiritual leaders over God's people, didn't even know the Lord. And yet Hannah takes her miracle baby this baby that she has loved for three years, and she puts him in that environment. How is she able to do that? Because ultimately, ultimately, she was placing her son in the hands of the Lord, and she was trusting God with that. Well, as we look at these last few verses, verse 26, we have Hannah who's declaring to to Eli, hey, do you remember me? Remember that I was the crazy woman? Stood before you a few years ago praying to the Lord. And then she says in verse 27, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now we're gonna go a step deeper here. Okay, so put your thinking caps on for a moment. Uh, There is an amazing wordplay that's taking place here in the original language, which is Hebrew, between Samuel's name and what Hannah is saying in verses 27 and 28. I'm going to point that out, but just a reminder, 1 Samuel is historical narrative genre, right? I've been trying to state that each of the last couple of weeks, which means these, these events, they were true and real. They actually happened. It's history, but it's being told in story form. Right? So just like any story, there are literary devices that are used, like foreshadowing, like symbolism and character development and points of climax and the like. You see that in just about every passage in 1 Samuel, where we see it here in this passage, a powerful wordplay in Samuel's name in the Hebrew and what Hannah says in verses 27 and 28 in his dedication that will serve as a main theme that runs throughout the entire book. Samuel's name in the Hebrew, if you were to say Hebrew, it sounds a lot like asked for, right? Scholars debate on the exact meaning of his name. It's something like asked from God or name of God. Some scholars try to put it together, but it sounds a lot like asked for in the Hebrew. Now, that's interesting and important Because in verses 27 and 28 in the Hebrew, the word ask is used four different times. We miss it in the English translation, but a very raw translation of the Hebrew, it sounds something like this, that the Lord has granted me the asking that I asked of him. So now I give the response to my asking to the Lord. For his whole life, he shall be given as a response to my asking to the Lord. Now, that's a very strange way of dedicating your son. Why is it being packaged this way in the Hebrew? Well, the reason for this, in naming Samuel, Hannah is connecting the meaning of her son's name to the fact that she asked the Lord for him. Now, why is that important? Why is that interesting? Is your pastor just kind of geeking out on some Hebrew here? The reason why this is important is because there is another name, who becomes a central figure in 1 Samuel, 
whose name literally means in the Hebrew, asked. And his name is Saul. Saul and the word ask in Hebrew is the same word. And so scholars believe that this wordplay allusion to Saul is actually foreshadowing a future connection between Samuel and the first king of Israel, who is Saul. Okay, tracking with me so far? Let's go a step deeper, okay? In this birth narrative of Samuel, where you have Hannah, who's asking God for a son, that is actually also introducing the storyline and the dominant storyline of God's people asking for a king. See, there are only two occurrences in, in the book of 1 Samuel of people asking God for something. It's Hannah asking God for a son, chapter 1. And then you go to chapter 8, verse 10, and we see God's people asking God for a king. The same Hebrew word. So this initial asking for a son likely foreshadows God's people asking for a king. Now, there's also some really interesting allusions to kingship or royalty throughout chapter 1. I'll give you two examples. Uh, They both occur in verse 9, where the Hebrew word for throne is actually translated in the English here as chair in verse 9, the chair that Eli was sitting on. And then the, the second occurrence is that the Hebrew word for palace is translated in our Bibles as temple, even though there was no temple, it's just a tabernacle at this point, also in verse 9. So, so right off the bat here, the topic of, of kingship, which again dominates 1 Samuel, is introduced for us in the very first chapter. So the opening of the book, and, and follow me with, the, with me here, the opening of this book is, is basically foreshadowing the central theme of the rise of kingship in Israel and the fall of the priesthood of Eli and his house here at Shiloh. Right? In other words, chapter one, we've got Eli the priest who's sitting on a throne in a palace, and yet a leadership change is coming. A divinely ordained leadership change is coming, that Eli will no longer be the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. Samuel will be. Right? That, that's what this illusion is all about, and it's linking Samuel to Saul and the story of Samuel's birth to the story of the rise of kingship in Israel. Right? If, if you knew Hebrew, if you were kind of reading this, you're, you would be leaning in and asking the question, could Samuel, who is the solution to Hannah's barrenness, could he also be the solution to Israel's barrenness in leadership? Is that what God is up to here in chapter one? See, the opening of this book, it prepares us for what is to come. That Hannah's request for a son is foreshadowing Israel's request for a king. And we know God had mercy on Hannah and gave her a son. God will also concede and give Israel a king. But in providing an earthly king to Israel, God was doing something much, much bigger, right? He's always doing something much, much bigger. But in providing a king with Saul and then eventually David, God was preparing the way for the true and better king, Jesus, who will come. See, if Hannah represents Israel and Samuel points to Saul, then who does David point to? David, as we'll 
explore and learn, is pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the king that we all desperately and so that uh, concludes chapter one of First Samuel, some things that we're going to explore throughout the rest of this book. Before we close today, I want to draw from this story a couple of application points for us. Uh, again, story form, there are lessons in here and, and challenges that I want to make sure that we consider before we leave. I have three application points for us. Here's number one. Is, uh, it has to do with the, the topic of stewardship topic of stewardship. This is a topic that, that should kind of stick out to us as we consider Hannah's example. And this topic of stewardship is specifically applied to children, right, with, with her mindset towards Samuel. But I think this principle can really be applied to everything that we've been given uh, from the Lord. But the way that Hannah viewed Samuel, it's just so challenging for her, she resisted having this owner mentality, mentality this closed-fistedness about Samuel where there's no hints where Samuel is saying, no, no, Samuel is mine. He he's my son. I get to decide, you know, his future. No, no, she's open-handed with him, with her miracle baby, with Samuel before the Lord. In verse 28, basically says, look, this son, Samuel, belongs to you, Lord. Use him however you want to use him. And that is the mentality that every parent, every grandparent in the room must adopt. Not in the spirit that your child will become a, a minister or you need to give him over to the minister. That, that's not the right principle here to apply. But it's the attitude of Hannah, the open-handedness, not, not an owner of, of, of your child, but you are a steward called to take this gift, this blessing from the Lord and ultimately understand this child belongs to God, that I will be faithful. I will, I will soak this child in the truth of the gospel and God's word, but ultimately they belong to God. And you see that even reiterated by King David in First Chronicles. This is as they're building this magnificent temple for God, this very expensive temple and as they're considering all the resources that God's people gave, he says, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. What's a healthy perspective, not only of our children, but of everything that God has given to us? And my question for you to consider is, do you have that mindset when it comes not only to your children, but to everything that you've been given. Your time, your, your, your schedule, your, your money, your resources, your possessions, your relationships, where everything comes from the hand of God. Before you quickly just answer, oh yeah, of course, everything comes from God's hand. It belongs to him. You know what the objective measure is in determining if you have an open-handed mindset? Is your generosity. That's the objective measure in determining is this mine or does this belong to the Lord? The key question to ask on a daily basis, God, how do you want to use A, B, and C, whatever it is that you're wanting the Lord to use? This will keep coming up throughout 1 Samuel. The, the main characters in 1 Samuel that have a, a, an owner mentality, the it's mine, they will end up losing whatever it is that they're trying to own. Eli, he will lose his priesthood. You have uh, Saul who will lose the throne. He will lose his 
place of, of kingship to David. The characters, though, throughout this book who, who give to the Lord open-handedly, those are the individuals that God uses and that God honors. Well, here's the second application point I want to point out for us, challenge us with, is to love the giver more than his gifts. I want to address a misapplication that is often made with this passage. And the misapplication is, is taking the apparent equation that Hannah seems to be demonstrating and saying, ah, that's how that works. That's how I can get what I want. And trying to apply that to our own lives as if it's a one-to-one comparison. So what I mean by that is you see what Hannah does. She has this painful disappointment, this great need, plus she prays to the Lord, plus she prays by faith, great faith, and obedience, trust the Lord, equals she gets what she wants. And we can look at that and be like, oh, okay, okay, I'm going to apply that to my own life so I can get whatever I want from the Lord, right? And we sprinkle some spirituality in that. I'm praying, you know, I'm praying by faith. I'll make this vow before the Lord, whatever we do. And we think, oh, God will do what I say. That would be a misapplication of this passage. Hannah is not demonstrating what to do in order to get what you want from the Lord. Hannah is demonstrating what it looks like to love the giver more than his gifts. That what she's doing here, she's wanting the gift, absolutely. But she gets overwhelmed in a good way with the giver in her prayer and in her worship. That's why verse 19 is so important. Verse 19, as she and Elkanah, they go to the house of the Lord and they're worshiping, that's before she knows she's pregnant. Before she knows that God's going to answer her request, before she receives the blessing from God, she is satisfied in the presence of God as she worships God. Man, what a challenge for us to want God and not just his stuff, right? To to want the giver more than his gifts, right? The, The question you have to ask yourself, the question I have to ask myself is, can we worship God, not just on the mountaintop, but can you worship God in the desert? Can you worship God, not just when your hands are full of his blessings, But can you worship God when you are empty-handed, when you're walking through painful disappointment? See, what's going to hold you up? What will sustain you when you're walking through the desert, when your hands are empty? The only thing that's going to sustain you is when we stop looking at God's hand for what he will give us, and we begin to gaze at his face, at his beauty, and his power, and his character, which is changeless. See, the things that come from God's hand, those blessings, they're going to come and go all throughout your life. And if your worship, your faithfulness to the Lord is dependent on what he gives you, on the blessings, you're going to be an up and down Christian. You're going to be fairly inconsistent with your worship and your faithfulness to the Lord. But if we fix our gaze on God's face and who he is, not just what he does for us, that will enable faithfulness through the ups and the downs of life. So love the giver more than his gifts. And then the third thing, last thing here, I would challenge us to embrace the God who cares. The God who cares. We've all heard the phrase that's found nowhere in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. 
right? That's, that's nowhere in scriptures. In fact, just the opposite. <laughs> the Bible contradicts that phrase time and time again. The, the correct phrase would be God helps those who cannot help themselves. And God's people say amen to that. Right? You see, helpless Hannah here, she throws herself upon God and we see God help her. We see God care for ordinary and obscure Hannah. What a powerful testimony to the deep and continual and genuine compassion of the Lord, that God is compassionate toward his people. Like, I don't know how you view the Lord. I don't know if we take our relationship with our earthly fathers or our employers or what, and we project that onto God. And so we think God is, is maybe mean or God has his arms crossed and he's frowning at us all the time or, or God you know, expects perfect performance. And if not, he's gonna, he's gonna relinquish his fellowship. I don't know how you view the Lord, but here we are instructed about how to understand a God who deeply cares for his people sympathizes with what we go through. Like when we go through hardship, it's not like God is playing hide and seek and he's only going to come out of hiding when we say the right prayers. That's not how this works in the Christian life. It's not God yelling down, pull yourself together, get over what you're struggling with. No, we have a God who enters into our suffering, walks alongside us and says, here, here is my grace here is my comforting presence. Here, let me be a place of solace for you. See, God remembered Hannah, cares for Hannah. And ultimately, this first chapter, it's not really about Hannah. As much as I, I love Hannah and respect Hannah, it, it's not about her. Yeah, she provides a, a wonderful example of how to steward desperation and view it as a gift and to pray and worship and trust in the Lord. Yeah, but it's not about her. It's not even about Elkanah, who uh, seemingly is leading his family well, providing for his family, caring for a hurting wife well. It's not about him either. It's not wrong to draw application points from those two characters, but ultimately the main thrust of this passage is not, oh, you're sad and you're distressed. Just pray to the Lord and he'll give you what you want. That's not the main thrust. You have to ask yourself the question, why does God answer Hannah's prayer? Why her? Is it because she was so miserable? Is it because she was so persistent? Uh, was it because of this amazing vow that she made? No. We see here in this passage, this isn't about Hannah. It's not about Elkanah. This first chapter is about God. This is about God's character. This is about God showing compassion and God caring for his people, that as God shows grace to this obscure woman by giving her what she did not deserve, giving her a son, we also see God caring for the nation of Israel who will eventually receive Saul. But check this out. As God cares for Hannah and for Israel here, God is also caring for us. He's caring for you and he's caring for me because in providing a king in Saul, he will eventually provide David and generation after generation after generation, God will provide the true and better and ultimate king, King Jesus. And Jesus is the promised one, that he is the solution to our sin problem, 
that he addresses it in full by dying in the place of sinners, paying our penalty once and for all, that he raised to life and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And unlike every king that came before him, every king that came after Jesus, Jesus' rule and dominion and kingdom is everlasting. So we see God's fullest expression of care in giving us Jesus. That's what 1 Samuel 1 is all about. Let's pray together. Lord, we do praise you and give you thanks for the perfect way that you care for us. Lord, think about Psalm 23 and that you are pictured as a good shepherd. Lord, that you walk with your people through the valley. And Lord, through your presence, you give us no reason to fear for you are with us. Lord, I pray for those who are in this room right now, they can relate very well to Hannah that they're going through painful disappointment, painful sorrow. They're pouring their heart out before you, O oh God. And I, I pray that you would minister to them with your grace, that you would strengthen them, that you by your spirit would tilt the gaze of their soul up to look at your face and not just at your hand. So God, help us to turn to you with all things at all times. We pray in Christ's name, amen.